Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. Life is a journey. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with Gary Kroger. Gary was born in Cedar Falls and attended Northwestern University. In Chicago, he helped found the Practical Theater Company with fellow alums Julie Louis-Dreyfus and Brad Hall. This association caught the eye of Saturday Night Live producers, and the three of them became regulars on SNL. A political enthusiast who has run for Congress as well as the State House, Gary continues his blog and podcast, Gary Has Issues, and is a featured columnist in the Waterloo Courier. It was Gary's work on SNL, specifically a sketch of Larry's Corner, that hooked me on Saturday Night Live. We talked about the fun and challenges of producing a weekly live show. Gary and I dig into his journey and approach to craft, the importance of putting in the reps, and the application of an improv mindset in business. I appreciated Gary's advice from one of his teachers, do something every day to improve yourself. It was an honor having Gary on the podcast. I thank him for his time and insights, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Gary, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here on the Iowa Idea podcast. If you don't mind, for our guests, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, that's a, that's a big question. Uh, well, my name's Gary Kroger. I am a 63-year-old man living in Waterloo, Iowa. I was born here, and when I turned 18, I couldn't wait to get out of Iowa because I couldn't see any way to be involved in show business, which was my passion from when I was a little boy watching, you know, Dick Van Dyke and the Variety Acts and the Ed Sullivan show. I loved the Beatles. I, I, you know, I wanted to be a performer. So I got the heck out of here and went to Northwestern, studied theater, um, didn't like the discipline required of higher education. I stayed with it, but I fell into a comedy group with Brad Hall and Julia Louis-Dreyfus and others. And we formed a renegade comedy group. And uh, it led to Saturday Night Second City, then Saturday Night Live. And that turned into a show business career that I enjoyed for the most part. I do the math, 20 years, 27 years. And then I became a father. And I decided I wanted no part of the ups and downs of show business. So that's when I moved 15 years ago, 17 years ago, back to Iowa to raise my family. And I've run for office, I've been a restaurateur, and I've been in advertising for the last 17 years. Uh, sounds a little different, but life is a journey. And yeah. <laughs> this is mine, and I'm sticking to it. That's great. Thank you so much. So many different areas to dig into. And just one of the themes that we see quite a bit uh, on the Iowa Idea podcast with guests is people wearing different hats and, yeah. and how that allows for almost different associated toolkits to dig into uh, for different parts of their career. So uh, when you, you, went to, you went to Northwestern, like you said, you wanted to kind of get out of town. I think as every teenager, it's hard to believe that we can do what we want in our small town, right? I uh, I grew up in Rockford, Illinois, uh, and uh, I pass I, it whenever I go to Chicago. I know Rockford very well. I know the McDonald's. I know the water park. <laughs> yep, but too for me as a kid, the first thing I wanted to do right was just even get getting out of out of the immediate area to explore. So uh, you said you wanted to be an entertainer, but what drew you to Northwestern? Well, it, you know, life is life is a series of fates when you are open to them. Uh, I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be, I wanted to be an entertainer. I wanted to be Red Skelton. I wanted to be Barney Fife. Um, and living in Iowa was actually a great advantage in terms of developing craft, believe it or not, because what you have to study from is the real world. You're, you're, you see your idols on television, you go, I'd love to do that. But what taught me how to play this person, that person, this person, or that person was observing folks living regular lives. And so um, 
that uh, that propelled me to have my ears and eyes open when I was in high school to where I could go to apply the craft that I'd learned from living life. Does that make some sense? It, it does. Uh, and one of the things I'm curious too, as you were getting ready to go, is wanting to be an entertainer, but were you familiar with the craft of improv before you went to Northwestern? Not even slightly, not even slightly. But what happened was somebody said to me, because I did all the plays that I could, I got involved in high school. I, I was the local kid who was an entertainer. And somebody said, oh, if you really want to get serious, Northwestern is the school to go to in, in Evanston, Illinois. And I'd never heard of it. So I looked into it and I saw, oh, my goodness, that Elvina Krauss, they're teaching, you know, method. Um, the tools of improvisation started there. Uh, Warren Beatty graduated from yeah. there. Anne Margaret, Lilla Heston, Charlton's sister is a teacher. So I looked into the school and I saw that, oh, this is a heavyweight. And I applied, and my, my record got me in. I had good grades, and they, they look at, oh, my God, this guy's done 12 high school plays. He's serious. So that got me to Northwestern. And Northwestern was wonderful, and it still is. But the experience of getting involved with other people, Julia, Brad, Paul Barash, Rush Pearson, a host of people, we were anxious to get going. So when we weren't in class, we were putting little renegade, we called it guerrilla theater shows together, and learned that this is sort of what improvisation is about. And then we became acquainted with Second City and we started improvising these little shows. We created a theater off campus called the Practical Theater. And it became popular to the point where Second City took notice and then eventually Saturday Night Live took notice. That, that's awesome. Uh, from uh, uh, improv and SNL perspective, I just want you to know that, uh, so I'm a few years younger than you. Everybody when you were, these days. <laughs> when you were on SNL, uh, and I have been, knowing this was coming up, I was trying to find the skit itself, but an episode of Larry's Corner that involved noise making yeah, I think milk I made coming, yeah, you made yeah, the fart noises of the, the armpit, right. and the, and so I was I was twelve at the time, and it was it was this magical like setup and delivery of a of a sketch. And part of me was wondering, like, did, was it a fever dream? Did I? So I, I was trying to find it, but I couldn't. But one one of my first episodes that really got me hooked on SNL and was improv Larry's Corner was was Larry's Corner something about the delivery and. Uh, well, that was that was the brainchild of Andy Breckman, who was a Letterman writer, and then he went back to Saturday Night Live, and he has had this crazy journeyman's career. He's written movies and a, a brilliantly funny guy. And he had this, we did a series of Larry's Corners, and something just ridiculous would always happen. Brad Hall was Larry. Yep. And one time I was the world's luckiest man, <laughs> and just as I was being introduced, a, I think a piano fell on me. Or something. something I, just I, I think it might have been a concrete block, not to be too con nerdy. Yeah, that's right. A concrete <laughs> block fell on me. So in another one, Larry invites his high school friends and they all have little tricks. And mine is I can make part sounds under yeah. my armpit. And Tim Kazarinski, was it? Yeah, he, he would eat anything. He would eat anything. And when he'd start to laugh, I can't remember the third, the third person. I can't recall right, or the, actually the fourth, right? But he, somebody would laugh. Milk would come out of their nose, and milk would come out of their nose. Right, right. So this now look, target audience was you, twelve years old. This is not sophisticated. This is not highbrow. It's just as silly as we could get, and it worked with the audience we were looking for, twelve year olds. <laughs> I didn't didn't have a lot of spending, uh, you know, from the from the demographic. I, I could give you my five dollars for my my paper route. You you also did um, a, another one that I, I remember too that I, I loved was the video dating service. You were Ira Needleman. Yeah. That one still gets attention. You know, it's funny. It was a big hit, but I wasn't a big star, so it never made the best of shows. Maybe yeah. one early on. It basically reran maybe once. But it had such an impact on people that to this day, when they do know that I was on SNL, they go, hey, Ira Needleman, the nerd dentist. <laughs> yes. That was something fantastic because they just gave me a, a ball of 
string. <laughs> and they said, and the, they said here's about $30,000. And I, with a couple of writers, came up with, they came up with this idea, and we created this character based on video dating. And what we did is we hired real Broadway dancers, a real MTV video director, and produced this, as you recall, extravagant um, come on from a yeah. dentist as a superhero with these beautiful dancers and they were flossing him and <laughs> all sorts of things. And yeah. So if you, if you don't mind from a creative process, could you walk me through kind of what from, from concept to, to production, what it looked like? Cause my, my mental model is just an extreme amount of time driven pressure to, to get 90 minutes of programming Yes. Together. What what was that like for you? Still 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 kind of fresh from the Midwest, right? Being on the yeah. East Coast, but then also just that for lack of better terms, and again, I'm probably it's my mental model, but the pressure to do that work on a weekly basis, what was that well, process like? There's no single linear answer to that because it's different each time for everybody. Uh, and I'll explain. Yeah, yeah. You know, there were twelve writers on the show. Their job was to get their material on the show. It wasn't to showcase me. They wanted their material on. So that would lend itself to writing things for Eddie Murphy, Joe Piscopo, Billy Crystal, et cetera, et cetera. That was their best way to get material on. Made sense. So for me and for Brad and for Julia, for Mary Gross, Tim Kazarinski, we really had to write our own stuff. And it had to be good enough to compete with professional writers. And that was difficult very difficult. But the process was, so there were different ways to get it done. One was to just get in your room, stay up all night, drink lots of coffee, and keep coming up with goofy, funny ideas. I would say 90% of the stuff that I had a good role in, I wrote. Um, but another way to do it is to just hang out in a writer's office <laughs> till three o'clock in the morning, and eventually, hey, Kroger, you play Robert Mitchum in this thing. You know, eventually they just throw you something. And you would also get to participate. Ira Needleman, for example, I think it was Andy Kurtzman had this idea of this parody of video dating, which was just coming on the scene. And he came up with this Needleman character. Um, he and Nate Herman, I think, wrote, started writing this kind of Springsteen-esque, my name is Needleman, I'm an oral surgeon. But they allowed me then to flesh out who this character is going to, nobody told me to make him this way. Yeah. That's where I got to participate. And then it was a collaborative thing with a director to say, let's make this a huge production with choreographed Broadway dancers who are your hygienists and... It, and I went into record plant where John Lennon used to record and recorded, you know, the, the soundtrack, played it back, you know, in, uh, in the studio. And that for me was the best of times because I was part of the creativity. I was given license to be the performer and it came together nicely. That's a best case scenario. You know, the tough things are when you work hard on a bit that could have um, not made the air. For example, they could have said, eh, it didn't quite measure up. Didn't get big laughs in the dress rehearsal. We're going to cut it out of the live show. And that would break your heart. And that was it, My understanding is that was almost immediately before the live show. So you, oh, you, it, it, you could have had something minutes. pulled out like, yeah, just oh, right yeah. under you. We always wrote, we, we were always prepared with, it's an hour and a half show, and we were prepared with two hours of material. So there was always going to be a half hour that never saw the light of day. Sometimes those sketches would make their way into another show, but rarely, because you want to stay timely. Um, and very often, you know, I don't need violins to be played. That was my stuff, you yeah. know. Um, of course, they're going to, they'll, they'll, they would have run with a lame Eddie Murphy sketch over a Gary Kroger sketch, you know, because he was a star. And I got it, but it still yeah. was difficult. Right. Because you look at this show each week as possibly this is it. Maybe this will be the breakthrough week. Maybe I will get the character, the catchphrase or something that right. makes people go crazy and I will start to emerge. So when you did get not much to do in the show. You know, as a young man coming from Iowa, 
those were sad Sundays <laughs> the next day when I would walk around New York going, well, at least I'm getting paid. What area of New York were you living in? Well, I always lived in the Gramercy area. I got okay. a little apartment right off of Gramercy Park, not the prestigious park, right. but a couple blocks away. And then um, I moved into a beautiful loft space just a couple blocks from there. So, you know, the 22nd Street on the east side, 23rd Street. Took the subway every day up to Rockefeller Center. That's delightful. It was that part one, sounds delightful. That part, you know, basically, in retrospect, I look at the whole thing as delightful. It, you know, yeah. it was difficult. I'm sure I got angry a couple of times, whatever. But basically, I was getting paid well. And living in New York, which was the center of the universe, still is. And every now and again, I was on television. That's okay. That's pretty good. Yeah. That's pretty no, good. Thanks. One of the things I, too, from a creative process that I was really interested in, and again, th these are like formative things for me, but it was, like you said, with uh, Ira Needleman and some of the work that your era, your cast era was doing, I thought there were some tremendous filmed bits yeah. that were put in. How... How do how do those make their way in? Because I, I feel like, is that is that production time different? It's like when we get this in, we'll see if we can insert it. Or are you already counting like using the Needleman example? Did they already say we we you have you have two and a half minutes and it's going to fit this week? Or do you do it and then then they see where it fits in a future episode? Is it more like a a human interest story in the local news when they're not sure on time that they have it in their back pocket? You know, or is it scheduled? It's scheduled. Somehow okay. it always worked out. I mean, nobody said Needlin has to be four minutes and 38 seconds or anything like that. It was what it was. Okay. And then somehow, you know, I, sometimes you would hear Dick Ebersol say to Billy Crystal or to Eddie Murphy, hey, we're three minutes short. Go out in front of the audience and ad lib, do some stand up or something. Now and again, that would happen. There were ways to always sort of accordion the show, you know, with the musical acts, the introductions. We could say, hey, the last sketch, you know, we've got a little more time with it than we did before. So it always kind of worked out because the idea was not to put things off for the future. Even the filmed bits, you wanted to stay as current as possible. Uh, the filmed bits, are a way to measure the time because once they're done, whether it's, um, you know, uh, uh, the Needleman bit, or I did this thing called Four Minutes to Live, um, Stevie Wonder was doing, did a camera commercial <laughs> yes, for, yes. for Canon cameras or something like that. So you know how much time that takes and you build the show with those set you know how long the musical guest is basically going to be, you know, three minutes and 20 seconds. Um, yeah, the structure, the frame of the show would sort of be laid out. That so I, that that's one for me, just thinking the importance of having a strong improv background, right? Is that that flexibility, especially the like go out and do this or, or it needs to run a little bit longer. Uh, well, I, I wasn't called into service that often for that sort of thing. I think I was once with Brad Hall. Um, it, it's interesting because Second City uh, was mostly an improv engine, and that was most of the cast members originally and then later. Um, and, of course, um, Out West, it's escaping me, the popular... The Groundlings? The Groundlings, of course, yeah. the Groundlings. That's all improv-based. And the practical theater that we were doing, that was improv-based too. But once you get to Saturday Night Live, there's not a lot of improvising going on. It's a written show. And even as an improv actor, you're still sitting at a as old Smith Corona writing the show. The only time you felt that you could improvise is things would happen. The cue cards would fall. <laughs> uh, uh, the host would drop a line. Uh, somebody would start to laugh. Some, a light would fall over here and you'd find yourself having to be spontaneous in the moment. But that wasn't a lot. Thanks. Uh, one, one other question, but just about host. How, how late into the week did you know if you had a winner or a, a stinker, for lack of better terms, when it came to the guest host? You really knew after Monday <laughs> and you met them Monday because the ones that really wanted to host and weren't just promoting a film or something and just 
to do it and read cue cards. They sat with us. They sat with the writers and they had some ideas and they wanted to hear the ideas. So Monday night and Tuesday, they're there, you know, pitching and developing things. Um, So you knew immediately that they were really going to be involved and they were going to be real ensemble members. That was most of the guests for the most part. Uh, There were a few, I suppose, that sort of uh, just uh, called it in. Yeah, yeah. We knew on Monday that Nick (laughs) Nolte wasn't going to make it to Friday, and he didn't. (laughs) (laughs) What, What happened? I, I, you know, I, I don't want to cast dispersions if I'm wrong, but I think alcohol was involved and he got cold feet. I mean, great actor. Yeah, right. And, and I'm sure he would have been spectacular, yeah. but he looked at this and went, ay, 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 ay. A little overwhelming. A little overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. And I love, uh, you know, like with improv. So my, my main job, day job is uh, designing and innovation. So doing a lot of uh, innovation and design strategy and, uh, design teams that I've built, we work improv and improv training into mm-hmm. what we're doing. And I know the Illinois Institute of Technology's Institute of Design, when you do in-depth training there, on the first day, they bring you to Second City for a half day of uh, introduction to improv and then improv games right? and really building on kind of you know, the basic themes and, and not to just be flip about it, right? But Yes, and, and how do you build rather than, uh, especially in design and creative culture, instead of saying no to ideas and rejecting things right away, how do you, how do you build it? How do you explore kind of that, that forness? What are you for rather than, you know, mm-hmm. critiquing what you're against? And so I've always been a big fan of improv in business and starting to see it get a little bit more play in business schools as well on the innovation front. So uh, when you... When you went through your theater, did you have a specific improv with practical theater? Did you have a specific philosophy? This is how we're approaching it. Um, or like sometimes yeah. when I think about long form or short form improv, uh, kind of a nerdy question. But uh, when you were building the theater, I'm just kind of curious on what principles you might have been using. We, we, we were very serious and I would say relatively intellectual. We were, we were intellectual. We, we, we were smart Northwestern kids. Right. And, and we took our theater and our improvisation very seriously. But our motto was basically never cut funny. <laughs> you know, it's like, just be funny, be in the moment, be present. Our biggest operating principle, which we developed before we connected with Second City was always be positive. Don't negate. Take what you're given and add to it, or not even add to it, continue it. Rather, you know, the old example of a bad improv, well, this is a bumpy plane ride. We're a bumpy plane ride. I thought we were on a bus. (laughs) Now there's nowhere to go. So we learned whatever you get, treat it as if it was the most fantastic thing you possibly could have gotten. And so Our operating principle was just to take whatever we thought of and make it work. For example, Paul Barras was really one of, and Brad Hall were sort of the visionaries of the practical theater. And we're doing a show together and we have no material written. And Paul said, all right, everybody come up with five funny titles. Kroger, go. Uh, I I don't know. uh, Dancing Tangerines. Good. Great. Let's start with that. Now, there's no idea attached to the dancing tangerines. It was just some weird thought that went through my head. Dancing tangerines. Well, now I'm under the gun. Okay, um, this old guy puts tangerines on puppet strings, and he dances for the kids, and we do it like a document. Well, we're doing that bit to this day, 35 years later. We just did a reprise of, of our old material and Dancing Tangerines was there. And I use that as an example yeah. because it was a zero thought process. Give me a funny title. I love that. Let's come up with a bit. Let's go with it. And everybody then collaborated to make it something. And, and that was how we wrote kind of everything. Yeah, and I might tie that into you as a creative director, too, when you're working with creative teams. Like for, for me, part of it is also on the consulting side that uh, you might go in with a script, but anything can happen in a client meeting. Yeah. And so also the improv to be able to think on your feet, to be able to be able to accept and not be defensive. 
and, tr correct. and try to build it, right? Because the client can see right away if you get defensive, right? Or if, yes, if, and I would say that that's why I was successful in, in advertising for 17 years was my ability to think on my feet. You go in with the best laid plans. You go in having made decisions. This is why you did this commercial. This is why you have this media plan and all of these things. But you don't know what you're going to get back. You hope for a certain result, but nine times out of 10, you're thrown a few curves. I was always able to get up on my feet and come up with the new dancing tangerines. I don't right. mean to keep belaboring <laughs> yeah. that, yep. but a, a client would very often say, nope, I don't like any of it. And if you're not a confident improvisational person, you might freak out. And I was able to go, okay, well, how about, because I know you liked this and I see what you're doing now, and I would throw out ideas. Now, they wouldn't necessarily be great ideas, but the client can see, oh my goodness gracious, that's creativity happening on the spot. Right, right. Now, my consulting business, which I started during, actually a few years ago, my lead program with Outlier Creative Solutions um, is improvisation that I teach to businesses. Big seminars where I get people on their feet. We do first line, last line, tag teams, heralds, things like that, where I show the basic principles of never negating, taking what you've got and building on it, and more than anything, listening. Everybody's worried about what am I going to say? What am, now you're thinking. You're thinking. The first thing I always say in my class is, did anybody get their script this morning? And they all look at me like, what? What do you mean? You, did you get your script? No. And yet you knew what to say to the gas station attendant. You knew what to say to the grocer. You knew what to say to your kids. You knew what to say to your wife or your husband. You know what to say because you responded to what you heard. That's all improv is. Yeah, you don't have great. to come up with a funny line. You don't have to have the punchline. Just participate through listening. And that is a ha an aha moment for a lot of people. Yeah, thank you. Because one of my follow-up questions was going to be, where, where do you see some of those breakthroughs? So I, 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 I love your intro to help them get that mindset. Yeah. Those hurdles in, in business to being present, being listening versus, you said, usually it's, it's more just turn-taking. Like somebody is just waiting to deliver their line ra right. rather than actually listening to and being present. Uh, so why do you think business struggles with that so much? Well, I, I don't, good question. I mean, I hadn't really thought of it, but they do because basically, and COVID stopped my seminars and now I'm yeah, trying to do yep. some things with Zoom. Right. Pre previously, what I would have is anywhere from 12 to 100 people. I had 250 people once. And usually it's corporate that says, hey, this improv thing's kind of catching on. We've got Gary Kroger here. He does an improv yep. class for businesses. Um, and they're forced to go. Because I'll ask people, how many people want to get up on stage and do improv today? Nobody oh, puts up their right, hand. Right. Nobody. So I put them at ease with that comments that you don't have to be funny. People only get nervous when they're anticipating something and they're dreading a bad result. They're afraid of making a fool of themselves. This is a no-fail environment. You're not being judged for how clever or cute or funny you are. It's just a process to have the experience of being with your coworkers and working on a problem together, building a team together. Yeah, the right, the notion of the ensemble and team things, I think, are so so important, especially as we get into more complex problem solving, whether it's in business or society, right? But the ability to be present, listen, collaborate, uh, rather than waiting to deliver your punchline, right? whether it's a funny punchline or not. But yeah, I love that. Um, so when I used to live in Minneapolis and I did training at uh, Brave New Workshop. Uh, yeah. And what's interesting there is uh, some of the the transition they made as well, too, over time from in improv theater and, and then training to actually doing more corporate training as well. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, and I hope it yields better results. I don't know if a more ethical business as well would be great. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, Want to ask you a little bit too about um, Gary has issues, your socio-political blog. What, what yeah. motivated you to, and I love the title, what motivated you to start that? 
Well, you know, I've been political my whole life. Practical theater was very political. We did a lot of political commentary. We thought that we had a mission to um, not to um, indoctrinate, but to illuminate uh, the human condition. I mean, maybe that was one of our operating principles is like, let's, you know, let, let's have something to say. So I've always been political. But when I came back to Cedar Falls, Iowa, um, after living in Chicago, New York, and LA, which are progressive cities, um, this town is very conservative. Iowa is very conservative. I mean, now and again, they go, Iowa goes blue, but we're either purple or red most of the time. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's a little bit difficult to be the liberal in a sea of um, very conservative people. And so I started using social media, Facebook, 10, 12 years ago, and I would just write, hey, this was in the news and these are my thoughts. And lots of people would support them. Lots of people would hate them. But somebody said to me at, uh, at, a, at where I worked at Mud Advertising, hey, you know, when you write these tomes on Facebook, they kind of take up the whole page. Why don't you just create a little blog so, it will, so if we want to read your stuff, we can choose to. I didn't even know what a blog was. Okay. So I looked into it and found a platform, WordPress, and I thought, well, a good name. Somebody said, you know what, Gary, you have issues. And I thought, well, that's a good title. <laughs> Gary has issues. So I started writing my articles uh, and putting them on, on the blog, Gary has issues. Well, it, it, a, a lot of them have been entertainment related, and I've written about Saturday Night Live, and, but most of it is sort of socio-political commentary, what my take is on the world and policies and the president and so on and so forth. And I put that up there on social media and Twitter. So the people who choose to roll up their sleeves do. Um, more often than not, you know, I, 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 get, I take my share of hits. Yeah. Um, but I've written 300 articles. I also write for the local paper. I wrote on the yeah. left hand of column of the uh, opinion page. And so I've carved out a niche as a progressive, but I do get respect from the right side, from some people on the right who have said to me, well, you're at least listening to us. Maybe that's my improv background and not just telling us we're a bunch of assholes. You know, you, you, I often offer an olive branch. You don't we'll yes and the asshole comment, like you're an <laughs> asshole and. And, right, right. No. Well, I, I, what I try to do is offer solutions or at least philosophical conclusions that offer a way to get along better and to create something together, even with diverse and varied opinions. That's my intention. Yeah, no, that that's great. And I, um, are you familiar with the book? Uh, it was Thomas Frank, What's the Matter with Kansas? Have you read that? I haven't read it, but I have heard of it. So that, in, for me, growing up in Illinois, uh, northern Illinois, kind of Rockford, failed factory town, really, right? You mm -hmm. know, like in the 70s started, to, those jobs weren't coming back. And what that does is a pressure cooker to social situations in a community is, is really interesting. I do my undergrad at the University of Iowa. Iowa City, very liberal area, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, then uh, grad school at Illinois State. And then, uh, and then I live in Minneapolis for 15 years also, you know, and I feel like Kansas, Minnesota, Iowa used to have at one point a very progressive kind of caring for each other yeah. point of view. Mm -hmm. But over the past 25 years, it seems like that's been kicked to the side. Uh, and I was just kind of curious from your perspective, both from politics and, you know, as a, as a resident uh, growing up and now back, what do you think contributes to that? And well, we might not I have enough time. Well, <laughs> yeah, years. I think you're absolutely right. I, I don't, I don't, wouldn't go back necessarily 25 years. I'd go back in the last 12 years because I came here not just because I grew up here, not because, just because I had connections here, but because I thought Iowa would be a good place to raise my kids. And that's because of a, a concentration on education. Iowa always ranked very high in, in secondary school education, mm -hmm. skills tests, and so on and so forth. And we really focused on teachers, and the Iowa educational budget was always um, it was always commensurate to the, the rising cost of living. The budget stayed with it. Uh, the Iowa Supreme Court 
very educated, struck down the Defense of Marriage Act before New York, before California, and I thought, you know yep. what? Iowa is a conservative state by nature, but they're educated, we're educated, and we understand those principles of letting people be, let, letting them, you, you know, um, equal justice. Right, right. But it's hard to say. I think it was with the election of Obama and there was a national reaction to, oh, wait, hey, he's not the one we wanted. He doesn't look right. I mean, I, I know I'm making a, yep. a racist accusation, but something changed. There was a seismic shift in in the conservative Republican Party where they go, whoa, 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 we got to pull America back here. That led to populism, which led to Trump, and now it's populism on steroids, and the conservatives that are being led by the far right. They've pulled the center right so far to the right that the Iowa that I came back to isn't here. Education does not get the attention. They privatized Medicare. Um, the, the, the rallying cries to bring back the Defense of Marriage Act and things like that. I mean, I'm dealing with um, race issues and gender issues. I've got five kids, and they're hearing these things in school. It's much more divided today than it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I don't know where it's going. I'm doing my damnedest to try to say, whoa, 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 folks. Let's look at why we focused on education. Let's look at why our Supreme Court said, it's, it's not our business to judge your gender and your access to equality and to society's right, functions. Right. But I'm not sure I'm being heard. Yeah, I wish I could dig into this more. Uh, design friends of mine that focus on cognitive bias. It's mm -hmm. like just it's realizing that uh, Political arguments no longer, they're not won by fact or reason, right? It's, no, it, it's an echo chamber. Yeah. And the algorithms of our social media that we're all addicted to feed the echo chamber. Okay. So people on the far right are getting far right. They're, they're picking up guns and going to pizza places to stop pedophile rings, right? Which is insanity, right. but that's the information they're getting over and over and over. Now, right. I know I'm in my echo chamber too, but I very consciously step out. That's why I have a lot of Republican friends on my Facebook page, because I don't want to just hear from my progressive friends. Yep. Um, but it's hard because, you know, Fox News, I swear when archaeologists dig up 2,000 years from now what used to be the United States of America, they're going to trace the fall to 1998 in the creation of Fox News. I swear to you, because that's when new news created an agenda rather than fact-telling. Right, yeah, yeah, and, and how those, those narrative lines get blurred, right? Are we talking about facts? Are we, is this, is this opinion piece or is this right. pure fiction? Right? And, and it's really hard for, I think, the general public to even sort that out, right? And like with social media and echo chambers and algorithms, right? I mean, kind of the, the broad stroke of Russian trolls, they, <laughs> they know how to pull the pin, throw the grenade, and step aside because yeah. they know it's going to just be and they're divisive. seeing it work. Right, right. They're conquering America. Yeah. And the get... fabric of America. It's just like the, the terrorists. Yeah. Do we ever win when they change the way we look at each other, the way we speak to each other, the way we get on airplanes? Everything about our lives, they've controlled, they took over essential parts of our freedom. Yeah, and, and that's where I, I feel like, and may, maybe when, when I was younger, you know, it's, it's naivete, but I, I did feel like just as, as good Midwesterners, you had more of a tendency to be able to come together, air, well, air grievances, have a discussion, appreciate where somebody's coming from, and maybe or maybe not change your mind, but not, not like jump to this extreme, of like, I hate, I'm going to do this, I'm going to try right. to make your life miserable. And that's the Iowa I grew up in. That's the Iowa I came back to. And you're exactly right. That's the way it was. Well, we can argue, but you know what? Uh, you need some help to tassel and corn. I'm there. You know, <laughs> right. it was. And, and again, that was the engine. That was sort of the, um, what I looked to were those values, those community values. Um, because people, 
it, the Iowa way to treat you if we treat you, which we may not do. And, you know, it, it is Meredith Wilson's you know, tune yeah. about Iowa stubbornness. But it allowed us this sort of freedom because we would relax. We didn't worry about neighbors, you know, running over your yard signs. My yard signs get run over now and again. You know, with yeah. political candidates on them. It's like, what? Yeah, yeah, and I, I've always been a fan of like creative or funny uh, graffiti or, mo but like, yeah, what's going on in the signs now, like signs getting broken, stolen. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's also a whole different game. A uh, question I have for you, uh, too, around creativity. One of the things as I explore creativity and craft with guests, uh, one is, do you, do you ever feel stuck? And if so, kind of second part, how do you get unstuck? Uh, great question, and I have an answer, because uh, I'm going to say I don't get stuck, but I can only say that because I get stuck. Because when I get stuck, I say to myself, you don't get stuck. And the way I <laughs> unstuck my unstucked stuckness yeah. <laughs> is by doing. I look at every – I'm a paint. Here, here's a little thing that I, I say to students. I'm a very good painter. I'm a very good oil painter, and I don't know how to paint. Seriously, I don't know how to paint. I don't know any technical skills or this, that, or the other. I start with a white canvas, and I have nothing until I put a brush on the canvas. That no, doesn't look right. Try it again. I move it around and shift and layer and erase and do things until I start to find what I'm looking for. And then invariably, whether it's writing or painting, I'm inspired by something that was created. I didn't go in with a plan. I didn't even go in with knowledge. I just went in to create, to do. And I look at all creation that way. It's not a thinking process. It's a reacting process. And nothing exists until you have the boldness to put that paintbrush onto the canvas. It doesn't have to be perfect. It will be someday, maybe in an hour, maybe in 16 years. It can get perfect, but you got to get started. So when I don't know what to write, because I write a blog and a column every week, and it's not the same thing, but something happens. Like my yard signs get run over. You know what just happened to me? My yard signs get over. Is this the way we want to, you know, I just start finding words and then I shape them like a painter and shape them and shape them and shape them. Um, I would say to any artist, let your obsessions flow freely. <laughs> you know, I become, when I start creating something, obsessed with it. I have to get back to it. Uh, okay, I'll finish that sandwich, but I've got to get back to it. And then there comes a point where I realize it's good enough now that I want feedback. Could I work with it longer? Sure. But I want to see how it lands now. And I put it out there. That's my process, but the process means nine times out of 10, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. I just do it. You know, and I say to my students and, and, and business people, one of the biggest issues we have is trusting ourselves. Trust yourself. People don't know, oh, I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I don't sing well enough. Yeah, you do. Trust yourself. You are a walking encyclopedia on you. You are the curator of the You Museum. Yeah. Nobody knows more about you than you. You don't have to have been an airline pilot to play one in an improv scene. You've seen enough pilots. You've seen enough little caps. You've seen enough that you can begin to create something that you didn't think you knew about. Following me? Yeah, that's right. One, one of the things I feel like I'm taking away is a, a theme that is, is something, just getting the reps in. Sometimes it's just about in. just doing it, right? Because you're, yep. you're not making progress if you're sitting on the sideline and not doing, right? Right. And that's fear. We are a fear-based people. We are afraid to step out. I could get hurt. I might look stupid. I don't know what I'm doing. They're going to discover that I'm as stupid as I think I am. It holds us back. It holds us back. And then, well, I, I need to read more. I need to prepare more. I need to do this. Then we create all these predicates that keep us from actually doing. There are lots of people that would argue with me and say, no, no, the more research, of course you do research, but you can do the research while 
you're practicing, while you're being kinetic, while you're putting something forward, be a constant vehicle for research, examination, you know, yeah, that's that's reflection. right. The work, the work that I do, I really work on encouraging my teams on iterative and building, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and one of the big things tr trying to get through to people is, uh, I think I'm stealing from from uh, General Patton, but it's like uh, a good plan today is better than the perfect plan tomorrow, because yeah. sometimes when you're always just sitting waiting for something to improve and. Yeah, it's interesting that you also said that fear, I mentioned cognitive bias, the friends of mine that are doing research in that space, but for a long time, our, it's, it's, it's a negative bias, is that, that the negative has a stronger pull than the good, uh, mm -hmm. which for evolution was great, because yeah, right, right, right. if we we're scared of the rustle in the, the, the bush might be something that would kill us. <laughs> right. But right now with complex problem solving, you just revert back to a fear-based kind of, you're looking for safety and, right? emotionally and intelligently, we can move beyond that because the likelihood of a tiger hitting us in a conference room is pretty low. So, right. <laughs> so we can up yeah, the- uh, Fight or flight is not right. needed that much at the library. Right. Yeah. Uh, so one of, the, one of the questions too that I'd like to close with or topics that I'd like to close with is the notion of advice. And, mm -hmm. um, and this can take different forms whatever works for you sometimes it's uh good advice you receive from a mentor uh and maybe even continue to unpack or rely on that wisdom today or the other is a, a, a refer to austin cleon still like an artist when he says when we're giving advice we're usually just talking to our younger self what advice do you wish you might have had early in your career or what what's been good advice you've received that's helped you i've had good advice and uh, my father was a, a mentor and and a uh, teacher was a mentor uh, two in particular. Uh, I had a very good structure of, of men in my life that were role models for me. My dad, may he rest in peace, he's been gone since 2001, but he was an engineer and a renaissance man. He built our house. He just, the world to him was nothing but a puzzle and all he had to do was figure it out. He was unafraid. He wasn't an electrician, but he'd look at the book and go, okay, this is da 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 you know, he, he would think like an engineer and he could engineer anything. But he said, kid, if you want to be successful, get up before everybody else. Get up. Don't put off. Don't have the discipline to go to bed. Have the discipline to get a good night's sleep. Because when your mind is fresh and your body is fresh and you get up, and I get up at 4 to 5 o'clock in the morning, and I always have, which my wife doesn't. She thinks I'm insane. Everybody thinks I'm insane. But I start reading and I start writing. I let the quiet of the day creep in and I get, I swear, more done by eight o'clock in the morning than most people will all day. So the rest of my day, yes, I have projects. Yes, I have assignments, but I've gotten so much work done that I always get ahead. Yeah, I'm always ahead at the end of the day. And I take that equity and I turn it into something. And look, I, I you know, I'll, I'll stay up. Gosh, I might stay up till 1030 some nights. <laughs> I've done my share of partying. Right, I right. still do whatever I need to do. But if I have something important tomorrow and I'm invited to a cocktail party tonight, I am going to say, hey, I'm bugging out really early because I need a good night's sleep because I have prioritized this important event in my life. Now, I learned that from my father. You do, you have to prioritize and make yourself as mentally and physically strong as possible. The other piece of advice was from one of my teachers, a great showman himself, but he raised a family here in Cedar Falls, Iowa. Um, he said, when you get to Hollywood or New York or wherever you go, do something every day to improve yourself. Now, what do you mean? Do something. Move the needle every day. Uh, learn to fence. Learn to ride horses. Read another play. Do some vocal exercises. Do something every day to minimize the question marks and the variables. Uh, well, can you skydive? As a matter of fact, I can. And to maximize your, your skills. Because when you do that, he said, you will instantaneously be ahead of 90% of everyone who went out there. 
Because most people in life say, well, I'm good, I'm gifted, I'm blah, 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 they're going to find me. But when you move the needle every day, a click, a click, maybe two, learn to do some new things, do something unexpected, start that book, do five extra push-ups, be conscious of moving the needle to improve yourself every single day. I took those things to heart. Now, look, I'm 63 years old. If I could brag about one thing, it's not anything that I've done. It's the fact that, you know what? I've got a lot of energy for 63 years old. I still feel like my life is starting, and I want to know what I'm going to do when I grow up. That's because I move the needle. I prioritize. I recognize the value of work, the work ethic, maximizing my time. I relax more than anybody because by when the bell rings at five o'clock, guess what? I've already done tomorrow's work. So, so you know, just, you, and you already put in the effort, right? So you I don't, you don't effort. have that anxiety hanging over your head. Right. I am not this workaholic. Oh, you know, well, he's hard to live with. No, I'm a lot of fun, <laughs> you know, but I plan it. I plan yeah. it. I, I wish, I wish I could remember. Uh, so I'm, I'm completely butchering this, but it was, there was a quote from an, uh, an old, I believe he was a cellist and he was in his nineties and he was considered a master and he was asked by somebody what, like what he was going to do today. And he said he was going to practice. And, uh, the like reporter was dumb. You're going to practice. And he said, yes, because I believe I'm making progress. And I love the spirit of that, that like, and that's one of the interesting things I also find about like what I believe are master crafts people. They may or may not admit that they are, you know, master like relatively above, but, that continuous improvement, that dedication to always trying to improve the craft. And I just found that incredibly romantic uh, notion. And so I love too hearing you like the, the idea, get better and well, work Matt, on getting better every day. What you said is brilliant because it, it, if, if, if you're doing what you love, if you're an actor, a writer, a dentist, if you're an improv coach, if you're a cast, whatever it is that you do, if you're doing it because you love it, you always want to get better and you realize you can never be as great as the greatest thing that, in other words, Tiger Woods is a great golfer, but a perfect game is 18. Right. It's 18 <laughs> holes in one. Well, yeah, he'd like to get there. Will he? No, no one will ever get there. But that's as great as he is, as great as Jack Nicholas was, still is, but as great as they are, they never got to perfect. They always knew they can get better and hone this and fix that and look at that and examine that and learn this. That's, that's a model that works for me. It's like, I think I'm pretty good at a few things. I can't wait to get better tomorrow. That's awesome. Gary, it's been an absolute honor and pleasure to have you here on the Iowa Idea Podcast. Matt, you are too kind. You flatter me. I I don't deserve it, but I I thank you. I I enjoy this more than, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope I'm absolutely, but I enjoy this kind of conversation and, and talking about what it is that we do and trying to create some math. Yeah. So that we can give it to people to apply. 